Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Christian Riley. He is the Vice President of Global Product and Technology Strategy over at Citrix. Before joining Citrix, Riley was at Bechtel Corp for 18 years where he was responsible for the strategic planning, enterprise architecture, and innovation program within the Corporate Information System and Technology Group. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thanks, Byron. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I love to start off with a simple question, which isn't really so simple. What is artificial intelligence? So, you know, it's very interesting, actually. You know, I mean, I think when, when I think about artificial intelligence, I kind of think about it in sort of two different ways. You know, there's the general intelligence, which is kind of very broad. And I would suggest is a, is a technology way of trying to recreate the human brain. And then we have this other idea and notion, which is artificial narrow intelligence, which is really about breaking down what I consider to be relatively mundane and, and programmable repetitive tasks that are sort of much uh, simpler in, in, in concept but are effectively ways of either augmenting or kind of replacing humans from doing certain tasks. That's kind of the way I like to look at it. Well, I think that's really, uh, really good. So let's talk about those as, as two separate things. Um, and let's start with general intelligence. And before I start, I want to ask you, do you believe that general intelligence is an evolutionary development from narrow AI? Like, does it get narrower and then a little broader, a little broader, a little broader? Ha ha, it's general. Or is an AGI a completely different technology? It's going to look completely different. We haven't even really started building it yet. Well, you know, it's a great question, but I mean, I, the first thing to, for us to perhaps realize is that, you know, when we talk about AI, it's really not that new. I think the instantiation of the current example of it is new, uh, you know, and as the technologies have got easier to, to adopt and, and easier to consume, I think that's given a whole new birth to the area. But, you know, I mean, I guess it's been around since the 50s and 60s, you know, the, the ideas of science fiction back then that, you know, robots and, and computers would take over and, and think for us. And, you know, if you go back to Asimov and the whole of iRobot and the very basic principles that, you know, a machine should never harm a human, and those kinds of things i think it's you know it feels a little bit science fiction but you know i think it's very real i think the general side of it you know i, I don't know whether we'll ever really truly get to to, to to the full scope of general intelligence the way we like to think about it which is you know effectively a computer or a series of computers can be programmed and learn to feel emotion and to have a conscience and those kinds of things that we have as humans by you know hundreds of thousands of years of evolution um, so, I, you know, I mean, the, the narrow thing to me seems much more like an automation angle. And I'm not sure that you would ever start with automating tasks and you suddenly become, you know, superhuman. I think it's highly likely that, you know, as humans, we figure out the things that, that are you know, offloadable, if you like, to, to, to ANI um, that can be repeated, that, that can be, in fact, more efficient, more effective and allow us to you know, go off and think about different problems in, in different ways and leave that kind of automation uh, element to it. I, so I think they're kind of two completely different things. I just have a, you know, a, a feeling that, that 
that the AGI or the general intelligence is a, is a much broader aspect. Um, you know, whether we'll ever get there, I, I don't know. I'm sure, you know, statistically we could say that, hey, you know, computers are capable of making decisions. They can add up better than we can, but they don't understand the reason that they're adding up, right? So are they performing a simple additive task or are they performing, you know, a household budget? And then if I have my household budget and I either can afford or can't afford an extra beer, then there's an emotion attached to that that computers just don't understand. So that's really fascinating. I, I, I think, you know, I've had 50-something guests on this show as of this taping, and I think you're only the fifth one to say we may not be able to build a general intelligence. And that, that fact really surprises me that there are so few because, you know, we don't even understand human intelligence. We don't understand the human mind. We don't understand consciousness, all of these things. And yet there seems to be, uh, at least from most of my guests, kind of a just a, a basic assumption that we can build this and we will build it and we may build it very soon. So tell me why it is, even if you don't fully, like, why is it that you, what would be the argument that we cannot build a general intelligence from your standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I just, I think there's just some things that, that even with, you know, the best machine learning techniques, I think there are so many emotional elements to the way that our brain functions and, and you know and i think the fact that we've got these hundreds of thousands of years of evolution and there's just certain things that uh, I just don't think that it's possible that we can actually do that with all the technology. You know, I think it's, it's fair to say that, you know, the whole of AGI, even though it may be conceptually 50, 60, or, or maybe even approaching 70 years old, but I just think fundamentally my, my heart tells me that, you know, even the smartest robot with the best of, of AGI capability, uh, I just don't think it could emulate a, a human being. If you think about the number of things that we have to process in the context of making decisions, and we're not doing these in sequence, right? We're kind of doing these all at once, and we're, we're, we're wrestling with this idea and this what if, and, and you know, you can look forward and you can look backwards, you know, with experience and, and, and emotion and learning. And it, to me, it just feels that there's, there's something about the human psyche that I don't think we'll ever replicate. It's interesting. The ro roboticist Rodney Brooks says that there's something, there's some basic fundamental thing about life that we don't understand. He calls it the juice. And what he says is that if you put an animal in a cage, the animal, you know, is desperate to get out and it scratches and it's trying and, and it's, you know, getting more and more frantic. He said, but if you put a robot in it and program it to get out, it just kind of go, uh, 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 and that it lacks this juice. And, and we don't really know what that juice is. And so it sounds like you think there's kind of some intellectual juice, some, some knowledge juice that we don't understand that we have that a machine may or may not be able to have. Yeah, I think that's a great phrase, actually, the juice. I mean, I, I think it is absolutely that, you know, if you were to put a human in a room, you know, the number of calculations that go through the human's mind, you know, not just how am I going to get out of here, but, you know, if I don't, what's the impact on my family? What's the impact in the people that love me? You know, there's, there's an emotion and a, and a, a set of criteria that, that I don't think, I mean, we can program it, of course, but I, I think there's something that juice there is, you know, it, it just to me is it, something that I don't know how we would replicate. And yeah, of course, you know, when we talk about A and I, 
um, you could argue a similar thing. You know, is a bot or a digital assistant capable of emotion when dealing with, you know, an irate customer? That's an interesting question. Um, I, I've never seen evidence of it because they're really not programmed to do that. You know, it's kind of a, it's a very uh, small set of functions, you know, and bots are a great example of, of A&I for either interacting or getting recommendations. But, you know, when they give you the recommendation for the restaurant, as an example, is that based on their personal experience or is that based on coalescing all the data that they've been able to uh, access and, and, and synthesize around other people's opinions? And I think, you know, generally, if you're going to predicate something upon other people's opinions and not your own, then I think that's where the barrier is between A&I and AGM. So let's switch lenses for a moment and talk about narrow intelligence. If somebody asks you, kind of, where are we at? Like, how would you assess our progress in building narrow AI in, in, in this at the end of 2017? Well, I think we're in a great, you know, I mean, again, it depends how you classify it. But I think if you take things like, you know, bots are, as I said, a great example. You know, if you take some of the, the, the popular uh, digital assistants that are out there, whether that's Siri, Katana, uh, you know, Google, Samsung, all the big guys now have made huge investments in that because they see, you know, obviously voice and, and the, the, the natural language processing and then the machine learning that's behind that as a, you know, sort of a key factor to engage the next generation of the, the human computer interface. So I think we're actually in a pretty good shape. You know, I, I, again, there's whether you uh, take simple things like integrated voice responses and say, okay, is that really ANI or is it not? I guess it's a form of ANI, but it's a very small, it's almost like a closed loop uh, system that will only respond in the way that that's programmed, you know, press one for this, press two for that. So yeah, in a way that's kind of uh, a mechanism for replacing humans. But I think the, the, the things that have a much more conditional background, so, you know, when you're asking a question about, uh, you know, where's the best restaurant or how should I get to the nearest uh, tube station or, you know, what's the best way to get from A to B, you know, that's really a kind of a different uh, form of A&I. And I think that's much more about building up the learnings and the statistical uh, analysis and, and interpreting that in the best way that it can give you an intelligent response versus, you know, press one for this, press two for that. And, the, you know, you're kind of automating it in, in some respects. And, you know, arguably that's a good, a good approach for some customer service angles. But I think when we think about the modern day digital assistants, the modern day bots, um, you know, I, I think we're actually making pretty good progress. Uh, now, again, the, the question is, you know, that, that's okay and it's very consumer centric today. Um, has that really found its way into enterprise? You know, certainly not that I've seen. I mean, there's some elements that, that are growing within enterprise use cases uh, of certain other areas of A&I that are not always about bots, of course. Um, but I think underpinning all that is, is, is really the key to it, which is the arrival of understood machine learning techniques that are providing the algorithms that sort of power the analysis of this data and are yielding some particularly interesting results in different areas. Do you think it's a mistake to personify, because uh, taking your view of these devices, and I can't say any of their names because I have them all on my desk next to me, uh, and they'll, they'll, they'll perk up here, but Amazon you know, has named their device, Apple named their device, they've given them human names. Uh, Google, interestingly, hasn't. It's called you know, the Google Assistant. Do you think that it's a mistake does it set false expectations if you make these things sound like people and give them names and all of that, that, that it is maybe setting the bar too high or setting them up to constantly kind of be failing because they're never really going to be 
all that great at that. Well, you know, I guess it's kind of interesting from, you know, which do I come from a consumer angle there? I don't come from a business angle, right? So, you know, I mean, if you think about it in the relationships that you have today, we all have nicknames for people. We all have real names, of course, as well. But, you know, to our nearest and dearest, we all call them different names and we have different, um, you know, uh, emotional attachments to those names. And if you think about it, going back to some of the early robots that we saw, you know, the, the, the Japanese have been brilliant at this, of course, over the years. They've always had cutesy names. So, you know, whether you were talking to a fixed device that was, you know, in quote marks, human on the other end, or whether you were interacting with a cute robot that would do certain things when you spoke to it, I think there's always been a, a, a need to create some kind of connection with that, with that you know, end, end uh, robot or whether it's the, the voice that we're using. You know, I, I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I, I you know, where the Bixby name comes from, I, I don't know, but it's, it's pretty interesting what Samsung did with that. Obviously, we've got Siri, Katana, and the other things. And then Google come up with Assistant, as you say. So, you know, maybe there's a master plan from Google to have that be much more about you know, business over time, which would be kind of ironic from a consumer search company. Um, but no, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's, it's uh, maybe it's another one of these things that, that when you think about it in terms of potential applicability, uh, further down the line, you know, and, and one of the things that I always hold near and dear is, you know, I can imagine this playing out in, um, you know, let, let's say the facilities for the elderly as an example, where, you know, unfortunately these people may be in sheltered accommodation or whatever it is and need to connect with somebody or something, um, you know, maybe ask for some help or ask for shopping to be delivered. Wouldn't that be great if that person felt a connection to, you know, whether it's a device that looks like a cylinder on their, on their table or whether it's a small robot? Um, you know, maybe that's again is part of this question around emotional support and emotional connection, which is effectively using the technology for um, you know a great result, which is making people feel better about the world around. I want to come back to that, but uh, but before we get off on on that topic, you know, yeah, you have to think though, Star Wars would be different if C three O C three P O, you know, were named Gary, uh, and R two D two were named you know Sam. It's Gary and Sam over there. Uh, and and I, I guess I, my mind immediately goes to the story of, um, in Japan, the robot they were training to be able to navigate a mall, and it was programmed that when it came to people, it asked them to move, and if they didn't move, it just tried to go around them. And what happened were kids would, uh, you know, mess with it. They would jump in front of it. When it tried to move, they'd jump in front of it. And then uh, they, they would grow increasingly violent, especially if there were multiple kids there. And so the roboticists had to program it to say, if you see like two or more small people, i.e. children, with no large people around them, turn around and run for uh, a large person because that will protect you from these small people. And the interesting thing to me was when they asked the children, they said, did you think that robot acted like a machine or uh, an animal? Or, you know, was it a human? They, they overwhelmingly said they thought it was human. And when they asked, do you think it was suffering when you were hitting it with your water bottles and doing all of that? The majority of them said, yes, I thought it was feeling distress. And so you, one wonders if we aren't teaching in some way uh, by making these uh, objects you know, that, that we interact with, that the more we make them like people, the more we, in, in essence, make people uh, cheapen, cheapen what it is to be people. Do you think there's any danger of that, or am I just off in left field? You know, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a good question. I think it, it, maybe that strikes a little bit, uh, Byron, to the heart of a question about, you know, how, how do we teach these things to learn? You know, because, again, going back to some of the concepts around the sort of the, the personalization element to it, 
Um, the unsupervised learning techniques that are, you know, kind of at the core of, of some of the, you know, AI and, and, and core machine learning concepts, you know, they're intended to, uh, both unsupervised and, and predictive learning, intended to try and emulate the way that, that humans and, you know, the animals that you gave in the example earlier, you know, that's typically how we learn. So it's a very unsupervised manner by, you know, kind of immersing ourselves in, in, in the world around us and watching how it works and then you know looking at how our parents our grandparents and, and other people in in our close communities how they react to certain things you know so there's a there's a very sort of interesting um difference i think between that and sort of supervised learning which is you know i'm going to tell you a thousand times that this is a car until you understand that this is a car right so it's a it, it gets to be quite interesting from the differences between the the learnings themselves but you know do i think we're in a, in a danger um it's interesting, you know, because I, I'm sure that there are elements of, of, again, of humanity where, you know, they, the perpetrators of those same things, I'm going to hit you with the bottle or whatever else. I wonder if they really make any distinction between hitting a person or hitting the robot. You know, maybe that's a failure of their own neural programming that they think it's okay to do that. So, you know, I, I actually think it's, you know, that the more that we, again, philosophically, from, from my perspective, the more that we can make technology engaging we can make technology seamless and we can weave that into the fabric of what we do every day and you know i think it's fascinating to see as, as we mentioned before you know the digital assistants and and the way people use them um but the fact that that's become so woven into the fabric now that there's not even an app for many of these digital assistants it's just kind of built into the fabric i think that could tell us potentially something about where this goes and i think you know to get that true acceptance over time I think we have to make these things as engaging as we can because they're definitely here to stay. I mean, I, I don't see it as a threat to humanity, frankly. And I know, you know, the other guys out there, Professor Hawking, as an example, has said, hey, you know, this is possibly the worst thing that could ever happen to humanity is the, you know, the sort of the, the, the advent and the speed at which AI is coming into the world. But, you know, again, I, I, I think if we can make it uh, part of the fabric of what we do, we can, we can and, and, you know, this is going to happen in, in cars, it's going to happen uh, in aircraft, it already is. Um, it, it's kind of part of what we do. Right, and to your point, Professor Hawking is talking not about um, our PDAs, but about a general intelligence um, that, that you know, you're, you're at the very least saying is very far away. So let's talk about supervised and unsupervised learning a minute. Um, how far away do you think we are from kind of a general learner that we can just point at I mean, that's kind of the holy grail, isn't it? That we can just point, uh, we can say, here's the internet, go learn everything. Yeah, absolutely. And wouldn't that be great? But I think you have to step back and kind of appreciate just the, 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 the differences between the different types of machine learnings. You know, of course, we say, hey, here's the internet, go learn everything. But, you know, there's stories out there about the length of time it, it takes to actually provide enough data sets and to provide those with the right algorithms so that you know when you look at a picture of a cat you realize it's not a birthday cake and that sounds like a silly thing to say but that's not an insignificant piece of of learning and so you know then you add in things like anomaly detection and, and regression and you know uh, text analytics and, and how do i you know distinguish between different images i mean that's not easy right so imagine taking every image that you could find of everything on the internet 
there's a high probability that if you take 20, 30, 40, 50 common items that, that you know you would expect pretty much everybody from a five-year-old kid to a hundred-year-old great-grandfather to be able to articulate what they are, that's not an insignificant piece of learning for a machine. So you got to teach the model, you got to teach, you know, 50 different iterations of that until you get to the fact that, you know, 99% of the time, I'm going to tell you that this is a cat, this is a birthday cake, this is the Eiffel Tower. So, you know, I, I think it's a, it, I mean, to me, it, it, it's just, it, it's a very interesting question about the, the, the structured versus the, the, the unstructured learning capability. But, you know, I think you have to kind of understand just how much goes into that from a model perspective in the background. So things that we take for granted as part of our, uh, cognitive world part of our our own AGI as humans uh, if you want to call it that is is you know built on this 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 unstructured unsupervised learning that we have which is very different than than, than some of the um, obviously the structured learning but also you know it is it's something that we sort of take for granted because it's it's in our uh, everyday world it's the way we do it we don't have to program ourselves consciously to learn the differences between things so you know it, it to me it's a it's a it would be great wouldn't it to be able to just say hey you know here's everything on the internet here's everything in the deep web here's how you get to it all um, you know go and assimilate all that and then when I ask you a question you would be able to go to page 407 of this thesis document that would give you the answer I, I, I think we're a we're a long long way from that so isn't a lot of it, though, like our ability to do transfer learning? Because to your point, I can train a computer to recognize that that's a unicorn and a person can recognize it's a unicorn. Then you can say, OK, make it a cake in a unicorn shape. And a human, even if they've never seen a unicorn cake, would say, oh, that's a that's a cake. And then it's like, OK, make it a cake in a unicorn shape with the piece missing. And then a human could look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's a unicorn cake with the piece missing even though they've never seen one of these. Then it's like, okay, make it stale, like it's been sitting out for a week. And then a human can look at it and say, oh, yeah. So what we're doing, even though we've never seen like any of those combinations, we're, we're able to magnificently do kind of transfer learning between all these different things. Is that a breakthrough? Is that, a, is that, is that something we, is that a hundred little tricks we're doing? Or is that just something we're gonna need to figure out for computers and maybe in a, in a very broad way we can solve that? Yeah, and, and I think it comes down to the, the again, the, the, the human element versus what we can impart and teach. You know, that there are a few basic things that, you know, one of the interesting things from my background and the world I came from was the breakthrough in 3D design. So obviously I came from an engineering and construction background and I was around at the advent of 3D design. And one of the ironic things that used to strike me about 3D design is that we as humans see the world in 3D. And yet, you know, we always designed in two dimensions and then we had this breakthrough of, of 3D design and we're designing exactly the way that we see the world. So I think there's a few elements that are like that, that are part of what, what, what we have as humans, which gets really interesting because to the cake analogy and the missing unicorn, does the computer know that that's a three dimensional object or does it see it in 2D? And if it sees it in 2D, would it have a different representation, different interpretation of the world that we see it in? Because we could, you know, we know that the, the cake is base is this shape and the unicorn should look like this. Um, so, you know, I think there's a few things that, and, and I don't know how far we are and I don't know how quickly we could get to the fact that, you know, there are certain key, and maybe it's part of the juice again, by what we talked about earlier, you know, how do you set a baseline and what is that baseline to say, you must have the following five things every time you want to make, uh, an interpretation of an object or make a decision. And every one of those things changes. So, you know, I, I don't know how big or wide that baseline is for us to get to the point where we say, hey, you know, if you have these basic building blocks in place, 
you know, this is how you get to that AGI. This is how you get to represent the human brain in, you know, as many use cases as you, you could think that we have every day. You know, so if you're the robot that we talked about earlier, you know, if you're going to go past a ladder and you see a guy up there cleaning a window, as humans, we would look at it and say, uh-oh, there's a risk that this guy is going to fall here. You know, would the robot stop? And would he have the, you know, the cognitive power to say, actually, I'm going to stop here and I'm going to make a recommendation that this guy gets somebody to hold the bottom of the ladder, right? So they're the kinds of things that, you know, that I, I wrestle with and try and figure out, you know, how much of that building block would you have to have to make the rest of it be, uh, you know, almost like uh, replicating what we would do naturally. It's interesting because... Um on, on your 3D vision thing, humans only see 3D for like 12 or 13 feet, right? And then beyond that, it's all visual cues, right? We're not actually seeing depth and we're, we're kind of like faking it in our, in our software uh, of the brain, aren't we? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. But, um, you know, again, I think it's, that's why I think it's very, been very interesting to see, you know, some of the big uh, technology companies out there investing in some 3D things, right? So if you think about, you know, what we've heard from Apple as an example, what we've heard from Google, you know, I, I don't think we're anywhere yet in terms of uh, our capability to deal with 3D um, through an augmented or through a virtual world, you know, and, and I think that, again, obviously with, with some of the, the machine learning and intelligence in the background, I think that's going to open a significant set of opportunities, um, you know, for for, for design, for construction from, from my background, of course, um, you know, but for tons of other things you know i mean we i think believe we really do see the world in different dimensions you know maybe there are even more dimensions that help like the fourth dimension you know if we decide that that's time you know can we actually see things uh machine learned before they happen and is it better that they can augment what we do as humans rather than try and replace you know, so again, the, the world that I came from, uh, we talked a lot about different dimensions, you know, two dimensions, three dimensions, then adding different dimensions for, you know, imagining uh, massive facilities, oil refineries, airports, you know, power stations, whatever it is. Um, but we never really had the machine learning capabilities in there. So, you know, you think about all these things that have been built over time, all the operational data that we have, uh, all the design mistakes that we've made. Uh, all those things that just get left on the cutting room floor because there's no mechanism to deal with it. And I think fundamentally, you know, that's what happened with big data, in my opinion. I mean, nobody that I meet anymore talks about big data. You know, that whole concept of big data was a, a five-year-ago question. It was about analytics. It was about business intelligence being done in a different way. And now that conversation has shifted completely to machine learning. You know, what can we learn? How can we make better decisions? How can we feed different data, uh, you know, into the machine learning algorithms? How can we iterate on those? How we, can we build models bigger, better, faster? And I think there's so much opportunity that's out there. Uh, you know, when you add in these other types of immersion, whether that be augmented, mixed, or, or virtual reality as an example, you know, what's going to come next based on the fact that we have the data, we have the algorithms, and now perhaps all we need is a little bit more uh, inspiration and a little bit more perspiration to really drive some, what I think could be some in absolutely incredible applications of, of this technology in the future. So you maintain, um, just reading about, reading you online, that enterprises really ought to adopt AI today. Like, this isn't an opportunity. Uh, this isn't the time to wait. Why, do, assuming that, that that is true, why do you think that is? Make that case, please. 
Yeah, so I mean, I'll give you some examples. And we, you know, we have customers that are either in um, extremely large financial sectors uh, and components of the financial sector. We have customers who do things like uh, online gambling, as an example. We have all sorts of different other customers in healthcare, pharmaceutical, in retail, in manufacturing. And, and I've failed so far to see a single industry where I think that, that some applied machine learning um, couldn't help them significantly with their digital transformation efforts. So we talk about this word digital transformation and yeah, it's a, it's a great buzzword, but really to me, it's a set of very distinct constructs that you either say, hey, I have to move to being data driven. I have to deal with that data in a different way. And I have to apply some of these techniques and technologies that we've been talking about, which actually help to drive different business outcomes. So if you think about it in the context of, say, pharmaceutical, you know, what are the next generation biotech companies doing to actually speed up the time of trials and speed up the times of new drugs and, and bringing those to market? Knowing that, you know, in certain parts of the world, there's a very finite time on the, uh, the, the license that you have to sell those drugs as a sole operator before they come generic. So you've got a small window of, of advantage. Uh, you know, the same with, with, with banking, the same with, with, with finance. You know, how can I get better at predicting what may happen? How can I get better at doing risk analyses? And then also, how can I get better at customer engagement by using, you know, the ANI that we talked about to, to drive a better customer engagement, you know, defining better products, making the products more personal, making them more relevant, making them more timely. I think all of these come down in my, in my mind to the foundation that was laid with big data, I think is a good foundation. But to me, it was kind of missing the so what. And I think now with the availability of, of the machine learning algorithms we talked about, and I think the other bit of that which gets really interesting is that these are becoming commoditized very quickly. And, and people kind of look at me with a, a skewy face when I say that. But you know, you think about where, where, where Microsoft are going, you, you think about what IBM are trying to do, you think about what AWS are doing. Um, ultimately what Google are doing. You know, these guys see the AI elements and the machine learning elements as the next frontier. And they want to provide those as a set of consumable services in the same way that you can, you know, go and get a blob of storage or you can go and buy a virtual machine. You know, I think that to me is a critical element. So yes, of course, you need data scientists and you need people who understand what the data can do for you, what the machine learning can do for you as a business outcome. But I think the fact that it's rapidly becoming commoditized and getting to the point now where you can, with a little bit of understanding, you can choose what kind of machine learning service that you want and for what reason. And then you can add that into your you know, next generation of, of application. And I, again, I use that in, in quote marks, which really is going to drive some pretty interesting results. So I think it's not a case of the fact that people um, no, no longer can afford to do it. I, I think it's a case of the fact that they just can't um, afford not to do it. Uh, and, you know, and as I mentioned before, there's lots and lots of different types. And I think Microsoft alone have, you know, half a dozen or more uh, different types of machine learning concepts that they offer as services within Azure. But I think, you know, the, the, the speed that that has entered and the speed that that is getting um, uh, to be commodity, I, I think will ultimately be the game changer. And, you know, there's a, there's a talent shortage uh, that everybody talks about, uh, just people who are up on these techniques. Is that how you see that talent shortage being solved, that the tools essentially um, are made more accessible to existing uh, coders? Or do you think we're about to have a, a surge of new talent come in or a combination of both? Do you think the talent uh, deficit is going to go away anytime soon? 
Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting, right? If you, if you believe what some of the stories that were in the recent press about Google, you know, they went out and hired an entire class of, um, you know, computer science graduates who had uh, specialized in, in statistics and in machine learning. So if you believe that, yeah, okay, that, that would make a ton of sense. Um, you know, and, and investing in that next generation of talent is, is a great thing. I, you know, and I, I wonder, frankly, if, if there aren't existing roles that will get, you know, repurposed in this kind of whole world. I mean, again, if you go back years and years and, and think about this, this is not a new challenge, even within IT. I mean, it's certainly not new in terms of, of industry in general, but even within IT, I mean, you know, I think it would be extremely unlikely now that you could walk into any large IT organization within any large global enterprise and expect to see, you know, PBX phone systems existing in, in dedicated rooms because all of that converged on the network, you know, almost a decade ago now. And as it's become you know, more and more accepted and, and, and more and more de facto, you know, we've seen the end of that skill set. So the people that were, you know, the, the command line interface guys for huge telephone systems, you know, they reskilled to be network guys. And if you think about that in parallel, you know, some guys who used to be developers in organizations who were writing applications that the organization had defined as being required to be bespoke, that's kind of ebbing away a little bit now in terms of software as a service adoption and standardization on, you know, things like Salesforce or Workday or Concur or whatever it is. And so I think, you know, the developers are either going off to find new jobs in other locations or in many cases, they're kind of retraining as, you know, integration specialists or, or business process guys. And so I think it's a combination of, of different things, Byron. I mean, absolutely, that skill set needs to come in. You know, guys who are in, in data science roles have statistics backgrounds, you know, they are either applied or pure math guys in some cases and that's all great but you know do they have the business knowledge and, and the business process understanding to actually get the value and demonstrate the value from the algorithms that they may they may create or or or, or take on board as part of services from you know the different cloud providers so i think it's a combination of everything i think you know fundamentally there's going to be a mixed skill set uh, you know, I think there's going to be a fight for, for data scientists, uh, for sure. I think there's going to be a fight for guys who can write algorithms, and especially ones who can write it in the context of a business. Um, but I don't think it's an exclusive club. I, I think like all these things, you know, we're gradually turning the crank on yet another major cycle of, of technology. I think what's happening is that the, the relative time for the technology to be adopted is definitely getting shorter on one axis, and the value derived from that is actually getting higher on another axis. Um, so it kind of feels like all this is coming at once, but again, I, I certainly don't think it's it's mutually exclusive world because I think we're going to rely on combinations of those skills, um, you know, business skills and, and, and traditional database skills, and then the more advanced data science skills to, to really come together and, and, and drive the true value. So there's a, you know, obviously a larger conversation going on around the world about the effect of automation and A&I on employment. What is your view on that? How is that going to unfold? Well, I'm sure the same conversation happened, you know, a hundred years ago with the, 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 the automation of the car plant, which was obviously led by, by the Ford Motor Organization. Um, and I'm sure at the same time, there was as much uproar at the fact that, you know, this would be the end of, of humans uh, effectively in, in, in the autom automotive industry. We now know that that wasn't the case, of course, and, and we can name a, a number of other industries that have, you know, yes, of course, there have been jobs displaced by that. Um, 
but they created other roles that we didn't necessarily know about. So I, I think absolutely, you know, if we take the case of, you know, maybe a call center is a good example. So if we could come up with uh, a sufficiently well-balanced ANI that was able to, you know, very quickly displace 80% of what you would call standard calls, then, then, then of course, there's a concern, um, you know, and I think the, perhaps the bigger concern is that, that, that those jobs, um, and I don't want to use the, fr the phrase lower end because it sounds a little bit trite, but, you know, they, they are... Um, you know, the, the kind of jobs that, that we would, you know, associate with, with, with non-academia, people who hadn't got, you know, a bunch of different qualifications for this, that, and the other, um, which you need, right? And it's the kind of the same argument in, in a weird kind of way uh, that's been raging through Europe and through the US about, about immigration and the question about, well, if you take all these jobs the way that, that people uh, wouldn't do by choice, what happens? And the fact is that, you know, you, you'll never ever get to a scenario where, where everybody wants every job but there ought to be room for everyone. So I, I think it's a, it gets to be a very sort of social uh, question. Um, you know, it gets to be quite a moralistic question as well in, in many cases. You know, would you as an organization prefer to employ people or would you prefer to, you know, have a, a machine do that that can keep your cost down, it can improve your competitiveness sphere, it can improve your uh, profitability, um, then that's you know that that's a hard business question. So I think the, the answer is yes. There will be some displacement of jobs. Um, they're highly likely to be the entry level jobs or, or ones that are ripe for, for automation. But does that mean that that will give us a you know a huge global uh, socioeconomic problem? I, I, I don't know. I mean I I think it's highly likely that that there will be different jobs, uh, whether that's in the same industry or different industries that are created. Uh, as part of this, you know, and, and, and yeah, okay, I, I hear lots of people saying, well, you know, the, the, we're now building robots that can maintain themselves, that can replace their own parts. Yeah, kind of, but, you know, CNC milling machines were capable of building themselves, you know, from every part that you need to fabricate them, but you still need somebody to put them together and to maintain them and to look after them, right? So, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question. Uh, there will certainly, in my opinion, be, be some displacement. But my hope is that, you know, like we've seen before in, in different phases of, of, you know, industrial revolutions, again, in quote marks, you know, we've always managed to find new industries or, or find, you know, new things to do that are a direct result in some cases of that automation. So I, I'm kind of hopeful it will play out the same way. I, I mean, I'm very sympathetic with that position. And I'm sh I mean, and we can even look to more recent history. I doubt... Tim Berner-Lee, you know, when he invented the web, said this will create trillions of dollars in wealth and it's going to create Etsy and eBay and Google and Amazon and, and Uber and you know, everything else. Um, and that's, that was, and AI is so much bigger. And it is true what you say, you know, an assembly line is a form of artificial intelligence and it, it must have been a very threatening kind. And then you can look and say, yeah, we, we replaced you know, all animal power on the planet with machines in a very short amount of time, but that didn't cause a surge in unemployment. And so you're right that history up until 2000, you know, supports that view. Uh, th I think the, the, the arguments that people put forth in the this time is different camp. The first one is something you just said a minute ago, which is the axis of the speed of the adoption of these technologies is much faster. And that that it's that speed that's going to get us. Do you give any credence to that? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, with, with that speed, um, 
I think comes the potential for, for exponential growth in different areas, different parts of business, which, you know, from a fundamental operating concept of running a business, it, it is either a blessing or a curse, right? Because if you're not ready for it, if you truly understand, you know, the notion of exponential growth, and there's a, there's a, there's a famous story, which I'm sure you've heard before, Byron, but I'll, I'll share with the listeners, um, about the football stadium, which then the question about, do you really understand exponential growth? You know, and, and I think there are, there are, there are some, uh, questions out there about will the adoption of AI machine learning actually drive um, the speed of new business or business growth so it turns exponential and the question about are we ready for that so the, the analogy goes something like you know it's 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 one o'clock in the afternoon and you're sat in the best seat at the very top of a of a medium-sized uh, football stadium and you know you can see the whole thing and the and, and for the sake of the illustration you know the stadium is actually watertight and so the question is, if a drop of water is added to the stadium on the halfway line, and then one minute later, it doubles in size to two drops, and then after one more minute, it doubles to four drops, and so on. So it basically doubles in size every minute. So you're there at, at one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, you know, what time is it before the water reaches the very top of the stadium and effectively engulfs the seat you're sat in? And people say, oh, you know, it's going to be months, it'll be years. And it's actually... 49 minutes so from that very first drop of water it doubling and doubling and doubling every minute by the time that the 50 minute mark comes the entire stadium is full of water and if you can picture that mentally you know that question about the speed so it's 49 minutes for that to happen but it's really based on the fact that exponential growth is not the way that we imagine you know double digit growth to be uh, in the traditional ways that we look at compound annual growth rates of businesses or, or, or that or that kind of image so the question is you know, if that does come along to, to your point about, you know, the speed and, and, and does that speed equal exponential growth, then the question is, you know, are we ready for that? Uh, if, if indeed that size and scale is predicated upon some of these new technologies. And I think that's a fascinating conversation. Another discussion that's being had, uh, especially in Europe, is this idea of, of uh, the right to know. If an artificial intelligence makes a decision about you, like the kinds alone or or something you have a right to understand why that is what what is your view of that first of all i mean is that a good thing and second is it is it a possible thing to are these neural nets just inherently ununderstandable well i think again it comes back to that i mean I, certainly in the uk we've seen examples of that you know the, the the decision making systems that are used by by banks for approving you know personal loans and mortgages and the things that would have always required you to visit the branch and to sit down with the branch manager you know for him to understand your aspirations and for you know him to have the final decision um you know as the empowered person from the bank i, I think those days are pretty much gone so the question of you know the the neural uh, construct that makes the decision based on a bunch of factors that are you know employed at the point of the decision so you know credit reference age you know uh, time at your company your salary uh, you know available free funds and all that kind of thing um, so I, I think the personal side of it has gone and if we go back to what we talked about right at the start you know I, I think removing that emotion is, is a challenge because, you know, now uh, there's a phrase in England that came from a, a, a TV series that was a comedy series that, say, that was computer says no. And so it literally is a case of, you know, if I get declined, what do I do? You know, what, do, do I have the same problem if I go to another financial institution? Or, you know, should I really have the right to know um, what factors uh, were actually, you know, part of the decision making process and ultimately where I, you know, failed? 
to meet those criteria that was set obviously by either underwriters or some other mitigation steps. Um, so I, I think it's it, 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 it's definitely very visible here in the UK. You know, we, we, we tend to uh, accept that the power for uh, those kinds of decisions, uh, life-changing decisions in some cases through, you know, through mortgages or, or loans, um, has really gone from the hands of the of, of the local bank branch, and in fact, many of those local bank branches no longer exist. You know, we've seen that those disappear from from towns and villages and, and cities across the UK routinely. Um, so, you know, I, I think every time you you apply for for any kind of, of, of financial instrument, uh, we just kind of have to accept that that you know the decision is being made by by uh, a, a, an ANI concept, and, and certainly not with the emotion and the and the considerations that we talked about from a from an AGI perspective, but you know people will tell you, hey, this is you know we've got lots and lots of statistical models on this. This is how we build up risk analyses. You know we do this routinely to see if you are considered to be you know a, a risk or a safe bet, and that's how we make the decision on on you. And and it really isn't very personal anymore. And what do you think about the use of this technology? Uh, in warfare and in weapons, that seems to be another area where, let's say, there's rapid adoption. Do you have uh, any views on that? Well, I, I, and again, I think this becomes a very interesting question. You know, if you, if you take the fact that, um, you know, in, in battlefield operations very, very recently and, and, and the ones that are still unfortunately going on uh, in, in some parts of the, of the Middle East, um, you know, it, it's extremely conceivable that, that some of the... Um, weaponry being used and, and in fact some of the drones that are being flown are being flown from from literally thousands and thousands of miles away from the from the theater of war from the scene of the battle um now i, I suppose the uh the, the one of the answers on that is that, that that's that's a possibly a good thing for you know the coalition or, or for, for the guys on, on on this side of the conversation because the fewer people you can put in harm's way and the more you can neutralize the enemy then without putting people in harm's way then is that a good thing is it a bad thing i mean i, I have to say i don't think any war from a personal perspective is, is a good thing no matter what technology or or uh, you know uh, historical uh, weaponry you use um, but I think it's a fact of life, you know, and, and, and it's really interesting, you know, if you think about that from a, from a drone perspective, from an aviation perspective uh, in general, you know, we don't call aviation artificial aviation because it's not birds, you know, so do we, should we really be calling artificial intelligence artificial at all if it constitutes some kind of intelligence that helps with the decision-making process? So, you know, my, my philosophy on, on, on that is, you know, the less people you can put in harm's way, in any situation, the better. And, and having come from obviously a, a construction background where construction sites are inherently dangerous and, and having drones do uh, tasks that you would usually put humans in the way of on construction sites, of course, it's different than, than a theatre of war. But again, there's an element of risk there. There's an element of, of potential fatalities. And I think anytime we can employ technology uh, and, and, the, and the AI that we've talked about, you know, to, to, to go and do surveys, to go and calculate, you know, how much um, concrete has been poured, you know, how much asphalt has been laid, um, you know, how, how much land has been reclaimed. I mean, these are things that we should be employing this technology to do and then feeding all of that uh, data and, and, and that intelligence back into, you know, ultimately providing a better opportunity to do, you know, more reliable design, uh, more cost-effective design, and hopefully more robust design, um, you know, which, which will continue to, to make the world a safer place.
And so only one more question along those lines. What about the possibility that artificial intelligence, just from a cyber standpoint, you know, we see more and more of these security breaches in, in big companies and governments, and they seem to be getting bigger and bigger and more frequent and more frequent. Do you think artificial intelligence, at least in the foreseeable future, is that enabling the, you know, the bad, the bad actor uh, to attack, or is it enabling the good actor to defend better right now? I, I, unfortunately, I think it's both. Uh, I would love to tell you that I think we, the advantage, and, and I say we as an industry, um, I'd love to say that I think we have the advantage. Um, but, you know, I, I, I guess we, we, we've seen examples of, of where uh, that's been very much in the hands of the bad actors. Um, you know, we, we've, we've heard a lot about different state-sponsored attacks that have used all sorts of sophisticated um, techniques. But you know, I guess if you think about it from the point of view of, of where the industry is, uh, you know, where some of the, 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 the focus areas are within the industry in general, I, I think it's high time we actually focused on the, the user behavior. You know, so our weakest link has kind of always been users. You know, we've thrown technology at security problems for a very long time. Um, but I think about it in, in, in a very simple way, that if we can build up an idea of what we would consider to be normal user behavior, the more data points that we collect, the more we can feed in, the more we can train these models, the easier we can spot anomalies. And I think that's true for, for, for other types of you know, network traffic and, and monitoring. But if you think about it from the user perspective, and the analogy I like to use with that, Byron, is you know, I travel a lot with, with my job. and I'm very fortunate to go to all sorts of places around the world and meet all sorts of fantastically interesting customers, partners, and so on. But you know, I can't get away from the fact that every time I step up off the plane, and I go to the ATM machine, the first thing that happens is that I get an access denied, and then I have to call the bank, and they have to send me a one-time password, and I have to actually, hey, you know, look, I'm in, I'm in Turkey, I'm in uh, Portugal, I'm in the United States. Uh, it is really me, I'm trying to make a valid transaction. So even though it's kind of a little bit of a pain, and I'd actually prefer it that way than for somebody to have cloned my card and be using it all the way around the world and leave me with the headache of trying to figure that out with the bank. So I actually like to think about it in a similar way. So, you know, if we can build up a good set of rich data about what we would class as typical user behavior. So, you know, Christian logs in from this place. He always uses this device. He always accesses these kinds of applications. Build that up, iterate on it. And then when something is outside of that, allow decisions to be made either closed loop or uh you know through some kind of human interaction that says hey you know this doesn't look right i think you need to do something and i think when we get that we can apply that into a bunch of different contexts you know in, in healthcare where we're doing patient monitoring at home you know I, I'm, I'm looking at your vital statistics I, I consider this to be normal but you know if your blood pressure drops or your heart rate increases i'm going to flag it to your physician uh, you know, and there's a bunch of other things that we, that we could imagine that are all about the user and all about what we would class as normal behavior or normal characteristics. And then being able to either action things automatically or action things with human augmentation when things don't look like they're normal. So I, I think that's the one, the, the one thing that I look at in terms of, you know, where's the next frontier of, 
of, of security going, it really has to focus on that because, you know, you can build a castle and a moat and you can argue that, you know, to keep the bad guys out, you just need to keep building the walls higher. But the reality is that we, we don't live like that. We live in metropolitan cities. We don't live in castles in forests anymore. Um, so I, I think we have to approach that a different way. And, and certainly, you know, by building up a, a very rich set of data uh, and, and iterating and training these models on what we would class as normal user behavior, I, I think we've got a, a much better chance of fighting things that don't look normal that could obviously be uh, as the impact of an account takeover or a credential harvesting attack or, or somebody impersonating me in, in either a personal or a business way. So tell me a little bit about your role at Citrix and what you do there and how, how is Citrix using artificial intelligence? How are you kind of, what are you doing in this area that uh, might be of interest to a general business audience? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of things, you know, one that I just kind of talked about around what we've now called the Citrix Analytics Service. So, you know, from, from what we do at Citrix, we're very privileged to be in uh, a very key part of, of most of our customers' application delivery from either inside their offices or, or, or for their mobile workforce or their, you know, their home workers or contractors or partners or whatever that is. So we're, we, we sit in a, a very key position in terms of the, the, the user interaction, you know, where users come from, what kind of devices they're on. So the things I talked about around uh, you know, building up this rich set of information around the user. So that's absolutely what we're focused on within the, the Citrix Analytics Service. So what you'll see towards the end of this year and, and then uh, early into 2018 are sort of releases of that Citrix Analytics Service based on our Citrix Cloud platform. So that will be something that we bring to market very quickly. And then we're thinking about sort of, well, that's a security thing. That's all about sort of protecting. But what about enablement? So, you know, the, the, the notion that we build these secure digital workspaces that aggregate different types of applications and, and different types of services across different types of clouds. You know, how can we actually mine what people do to actually provide them with the context of, you know, depending on who you are, depending on where you are physically, depending on which device you're coming from, and depending on what you're trying to do to be productive and get your job done, we should be able to deliver you that content, that context and that information in a real time way. So, you know, if you're a maintenance engineer working on this particular part of an airport, or you're a physician working in an MRI review room in a, in a healthcare environment, we should know all of that information around you, not just from a security perspective. So it's not really always about just, you know, kind of trying to figure out what's going wrong, but using similar approaches and using similar models to actually deliver what you should expect at that point of engagement. So the time that you log in, the place that you log in, the device that you log in from and delivering the context so that you can be productive. So there's kind of two different things which are you know, sort of based on the same end user philosophy. One is very much about helping you know, IT to deal with security compliance control. And then the other one is really about the end user experience and, and helping to drive individual and ultimately business productivity across pretty much every customer uh, in every vertical that, that, that we provide services to. And how do you, from an organizational standpoint, think of artificial intelligence? You know, when the web first came out and you know, whenever, People had a web department, and then, of course, now that idea would be you wouldn't do. Like, how, and just in terms of general structure, do you even talk about AI, or is it just kind of assumed that it's, that it's driving all of, all of your future product developments? Yeah, no, it's absolutely an integral part. You know, I mean, I, I, we, you know, I think there's a phrase that I used was that, the, you know, we, we were very data rich, but very information poor. And that's because you know the, the ways in which we gathered data uh, were on a product by product basis. 
So we've kind of changed the model with that. We've kind of turned the pyramid around effectively. Um, you know, thinking about data first, thinking about, you know, how do we capture it? How do we, you know, interface with, with other vendors that we work very closely with? You know, how do we bring all that data together, um, you know, to kind of have an environment where we can leverage it? And so that sounds like an easy thing to do. It, it, it's actually kind of quite difficult. Um, so we have a bunch of uh, very smart data science guys, you know, who are intrinsic to our product development, intrinsic to the analytics service that I talked about. Um, you know, these are the guys who are helping us to pull all that data together to, to, to kind of bring it all into one place so that we can apply you know, these new algorithms and these new techniques on that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a core part of, of both our security uh, and our, you know, productivity and performance offerings going forward. And, and we believe that it's a, you know, it's a big differentiator for us because of where we sit, because of the longevity we have in our customer environments. And because our customers trust, you know, Citrix to, to deliver mission critical uh, applications and, and they will hopefully continue uh, to put that same trust in us when it comes to security and, and also to productivity. So we're, we're really excited about what that means going forward. Well, it sounds like overall, and we're, we're, we're coming up to the close here, it sounds like overall you're very optimistic about the future. Is that true? Like, tell me what, what you think overall in, in, in the world life will be like in, in 10 years. You know, I, I, I think we're going to get more and more things powered by AI than we realize. And, and I think the true measure of success will be when we stop talking about the AI as being part of X, Y, and Z and talking about the benefit that it brings. So, you know, I can very easily imagine that, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you want to talk to your digital assistant, say, hey, you know, how many meetings have I got today? Uh, you know, all the videos that you see where the guy's brushing his teeth and he's saying, hey, you know what I got to do today? That's all very, very real. Um, you know, I, I think what, what will happen is that those, those worlds of work uh, and, and life, if, if, if they're not already completely blended, will effectively continue to blend. And I think, you know, if you, if you take some views into the future, and, it, and it's not certainly not 10 years out, it's much less than that, there's going to be some significant shifts. You know, the, the, the number of, of millennials that enter the workforce will be around 70 to 75% by, by like 2022 or 2023. That's significant. That's a really, really big change. And I think organizations are already adapting uh, to that and, and adopting new philosophies around the way that people work, you know, where people work, the environments that are created, uh, the, the devices that they're allowed to use uh, will continue to evolve and continue to change. So you know, I, I think we'll see work as we know it um, evolve from where it is today, uh, you know, at that exponential rate that I talked about earlier. Um, and, and I think, you know, organizations have to get ready for it. I, I don't think it's a 10-year thing. I think it will be up to organizations to decide how to deploy and adopt. But I think the technology, uh, you know, the, the offerings um, will be ready way before that. And, and again, I, I think it's one of these things where you look at, you know, my, my past 20-something years in this industry um, uh, as a customer and, and now as a, as a technology provider. And I think if you, if you take on balance all the things that we've seen, this feels like a seismic shift. It, it really does. And I think the fact that we're going to be dealing with intelligent machines alongside intelligent humans, I think is going to be hugely, hugely beneficial. But I think it's also going to be extremely impactful in developing countries where they don't have legacy to deal with. They haven't gone through the 30, 40 years of, of technology that we've had in, in enterprise. Um, so I think what it will also do is it will kind of level the playing field for a lot of people. Um, and I think that will also drive some some very interesting um, 
prospects and some very interesting statistics for a whole new middle class of people, which I think is, is long overdue uh, and, and I think will be great. And, and ultimately, I hope it will be extremely beneficial, literally in every four corners of the globe. All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. I want to thank you for a, a, long, a wide ranging conversation on a bunch of these topics. I appreciate your time, Christian. Thanks, Byron. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.